Jimmy. What's up? Did I hit something? What the fuck is that? Is there flat? flat? What? No. What the fuck? You better pull over and see. Yeah. As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. It's your boy, the Mark Rob, aka Sean Mad Love, aka Gordon Darks, aka Four Eye Willie, aka Vernon Vaxwell. With this week's episode, Kat and I are joined by our friend Melisette of Frightful Fret with Melisette. Think of it as an audiobook podcast. She reads classic works of science fiction and horror. This season, she's reading Dracula. If you love the book but don't have time to read it yourself, give her a listen. The topic of this week's episode are the Martin Scorsese films Goodfellas, Casino, and the dark comedy After Hours. Again, thanks to Melisette for being part of this week's episode. She does all the artwork for us on our IG page at hyphen podcast group, and we love her very much. Enjoy the show. So, should we start with the renowned classic Goodfellas then? I'm such a bad Italian. I had never seen this. Jesus. Oh, okay. Okay, so I'm going to start really simple and really shallow, which is this movie series had a, a great game, I thought, which is, is he attractive or is he just playing an interesting character while looking distinctively Italian? So this is going to be a running theme throughout this because I could not get a read on if anybody was attractive or there was just good tailoring and interesting men who looked Italian. Good shoes, too. Oh, great shoes. But I really liked Goodfellas. I do feel that, personally, I feel that the first hour is a lot stronger than the second hour. I don't think that it's a bad movie as a as a whole, but that first hour, I was so in. And then the second hour, obviously, as he's breaking down, I just felt that the narrative was getting a little, like... So you mean when the cocaine actually hit is when the movie fell off for you? It's not that it fell off. It's just like it was, I'd say, like a half step down from how good the rest of the movie was. And for me, the first hour and I'd say probably hour and 10 minutes was so strong that that half step down felt really far. Well, I mean, it could be the world building. So basically, like Scorsese is taking us through this entire world where we feel submerged, even from Henry Hill's childhood. And... I would say the world keeps getting built, I would say, up until the marriage. And so when we get through the Coppola scene, you know, we're we're still taking like in depth into what it really means 
at least on the ease side, like the good side, like the finesse side of what being a good fella actually can yield you. And so, yeah, like you may be singing through the kitchen to get in, but you're going to get the very, very, very front row of the seat that you want to have. I think that this is probably very deliberate, that it's it seems like they're framing Henry to be like, but he's the good one. Yeah. In the first hour, it, it seems like it's really framed as, like, Henry has a wife and he loves her. And, like, I, I'm, I'm going to have to have a sidebar about the needle drops in these movies at some point because I, oh, man. You know, that whole sequence with, like, and then he kissed me is really, like, it's so artfully done. I love that that song ends and they still haven't kissed. Like, it's so good. And then in the second half, you see that that's just tacitly not true. And, you know, maybe that's meant to be a twist. I'm not sure if that's exactly what it is, but I think it, to me, it felt undermined the first hour just a little. And again, none of this is, I think this is all very deliberate. I think it's meant to show how insidious this stuff is when you are in the industry, in the lifestyle, whatever you want to call it. But I did I did feel that it just like suddenly gear shifted. So Millicent for you. So did you kind of feel this this thing that kind of cat's talking about? Because yeah, like if we kind of just look at the service level of what the first hour is, you know, I'm I have it on the background right now and we're going through all the mobsters with the different nicknames and I'm gonna get the papers, get the papers guy comes up. Yeah. And like for for someone who's not Italian American, kind of just going through the Scorsese movies and seeing like, yeah, this is a baller ass lifestyle. But then when we actually look at who these people actually are, Cat's right. Henry Hill is not a good person. Like he he's a drug dealer. <laughs> like, yeah, he's not a good person. But among them, he is a good person. So it all goes to be who's your group of friends, right? And in every group of friends. You have someone who's the good guy. And in the movie, that's Henry. But we know he's not a good guy. So this movie for me, I'm part Italian. I started watching this movie way too young. I've watched it on TV where every MF word is replaced with Mickey Ficky. And hearing Joe Pesci say Mickey Ficky for a couple of hours is more entertaining than it should be. That's how long the movie has been in my life. Mm-hmm. And Scorsese is very brave to tackle a mafia movie for this reason. Francis Ford Coppola did it so well, and he is the one who brought that to the forefront and into the mainstream, you, mm. doing the Mario Puzo book. And the Henry Hill story is different, and it's more contemporary. It's not as old world as The Godfather, because you really get into a lot of history with mm-hmm. that. And we're kind of seeing, yeah, this is probably... And starts in the 60s. I think that Godfather 3 ended in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So it's bringing us kind of into the timeline of Godfather 3 and, you know, right into the 80s. Mm-hmm. So it's not a continuation of Godfather, but if you look at it for that continu- continuity, mm-hmm. it's an interesting retrospect. And there's a lot of people who are, are part Italian and they don't know what that means. And when you or any nationality, you want to know more and you want to embrace it. And I think that these movies sort of brought things out in people who are Italian-American that were not raised with it, and they adopted some of those traditions, not 
necessarily the mobster stuff, okay, but like but, the big Sunday dinners, the family mm -hmm. dinners, and that sort of thing. Because at their core, they are true to their heritage and their families, even if they're acting like idiots, right? Right. And it's all about family at the end of the day, even in protecting your family. But for these people, they don't have their blood relatives. They've got their chosen family. Mm -hmm. And they all protect each other and they look out for each other. I do really like the Italianness of it all. Surprise, my last name is Cinetti. I'm Italian. Who'd ever have thought? Not to be all like whatever, but we're we're Northern Italian. We're uh, Milan folk, so we they they were like You're well, lighter and <laughs> well, I don't look got, Italian at all. We we've got paler skin and darker hair, but at, at the wedding scene where they're like everybody's either like Peter or Mark, Peter Paul, and they're married to Marie. Yes, we're we're Mark and Paul. I uh, have but so anyway. many reasons in my family. It's everybody's middle name. <laughs> it is everybody's middle name in my family, and we've got one Marie. It was like, you know, a, a full-blooded Marie. The family aspect is really strong, but it's very different than the way that the Godfather family feels, if that makes sense. Well, the Godfather no, kept it is. blood. I think right. it's difference. Yeah, and the kind of difference between what Ford, uh, Ford Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola did with Godfather and what Scorsese's done, not only with you know, Goodfellas, uh, even if you go back to Mean Streets uh, from 73, I think Scorsese just has a the interest of what he likes versus what The Godfather was. Like, I don't think Scorsese really has interest in kind of like the high-level guys, like the bosses or whatever. Like, Godfather's all about what the Corleone family was and how they ran, like, everything and how Michael kind of brought them back. But then he gradually takes Michael's story and kind of flips it to how the Corleone family basically, you know, died out in a way. But for Scorsese, like his approach to with just how he likes people, I think is starkly different from what that movie was. Like for Mean Streets, it's basically like two bit hustlers. I mean in this I mean, in Goodfellas it's it's kind of the same thing, but they're like slightly elevated above like street guys, but Maybe they're not really because they're still doing the actual robberies themselves. Like they're doing the stickups themselves. They just have fancier suits than the goons on your corner. Yeah, but also there are some of them that I would say like really do. They are the white collar boys. The fact that Henry knows something's wrong because they ask him to whack somebody, and he he knows that he would never. Like that's not his department is very yeah. like it's it's an organization yeah you, and you definitely have your levels too because you've got you put you have the head of the family that's your ceo you know and everybody has a job function and if you're a union employee and a light bulb breaks if you happen to be there on site and the light bulb breaks if that's not your job you're not replacing the light bulb because mm -hmm. you're taking a job away from somebody else and that's how it's set up with the crime families yeah. So you yeah. definitely have your people who, the people who do the whackings and your people who do the leg breakings and things mm -hmm. like that. I also really enjoyed just how, yes, everybody has a job. And also like there are like the Lufthansa, like the whole thing about the Lufthansa event, the trip, apparatus, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, exactly. Where they were like, 
okay, so don't make any big purchases. And then some people did. Yeah. And I will just say, I've seen a lot of really good, good needle drops in my life. But the coda of Layla over those bodies and the fact that they sneakily stitched in an extra 16 to cover Tommy getting whacked as well is just... I know that Robbie Robertson from the band uh, was a collaborator with Scorsese and, you know, that's how the last waltz happened and stuff. But you can tell that somebody who knows and loves rock music was involved there. And that's the nice thing about Scorsese is, for me, Scorsese creates an experience. It's a movie, but it's an experience and it's sensory. And like when you mentioned the wedding scene before, Mm -hmm. she says, I felt drunk. You feel that from the way the cinematography is going. Mm -hmm. And then she looks and there's that long line of people with the envelopes. That's what Scorsese does best because he sucks you in. And with the second hour, I completely agree with that assessment that the second hour, it's like a different movie. And maybe that's part of it because, as you said, Henry's breaking down and we know that the movie has to have an ending. And because of everything that's going on, it's not going to be pretty and it's not going to be nice. Not that it was pretty and nice before, but it was more glamorized because they're doing what they love and they like their status is the guys who get things done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so even if you think about uh, Joe Pesci's character and how if you look at the first hour, he's just this renegade guy who just tells funny jokes and is super aggressive you know, he, he wants to go on dates with pretty women, you know, whatever, whatever. Like, that's cool. But in the the last hour of the movie, we see him murder a kid. And it's like, yeah. like and, and, and the thing is, like, what's worse, like him murdering the kid or their reaction to him murdering the kid? He's just a hole to be buried. Like, that's what the last part of the movie is. It's just that Scorsese did this wonderful job of building up the fallacy of what the glamour what this lifestyle was but then we at the end of the day we see how none of this shit could really last and because all these people are amoral in a lot of different ways and all empires fall too which seems to be a kind of a theme with scorsese yeah so cat so Mm. for this for goodfellas so should we play the game of are they just styled to look good are they actually sexy (laughs) Okay, so I have a theory on this. Uh, Ray Liotta is really attractive if he, does, if he doesn't move his face at all. Wow. As soon as he does any sort of emoting, he looks like he's going to axe murder you. He's got, like, big, like, Christian Bale and American Psycho energy where you just, like, he suddenly makes a face and you're like, oh, this is the last thing I see before I perish. I mean, he's okay. incredibly intense, yes. Who? Who? I beg you. Who decided? Yeah, you know who looks like a completely Irish person? Robert De Niro. How about a morning to you? Hey. That's not the first time he's played an Irish person. I I know. It's not even the last. It's not the most recent Irish in a few movies now. But like, and that's the one we're supposed to think is not Italian at all. Hey, I suspended disbelief. I mean, Looks good in a suit, though. He, oh, God. Wait Young until we Bobby get to the Young Bobby De Niro. Oh. 
I'm a big fan of, of how he dresses in Casino. I have a thesis prepared. But anyway, so I really love this movie. I thought it was really good. I think this is probably technically the best movie we watched. Of these three? Yeah. It's definitely the most lauded. Like, mm-hmm. critically, I'm fairly certain uh, Goodfellas is Scorsese's, like, most favorite film. Like, I personally like Casino better. Me too. But for, like, general consensus, probably people say Goodfellas is, like, the third best mafia movie ever behind, obviously, Godfather's 1 and 2. But this movie's pretty nuts, man, in a, in a really great way. Like, you talk about the needle drops, like... In Casino, he has the music. The music is more prevalent in Casino. Maybe that's why I like it better. But in Goodfellas, he does a real subtle dance in a way that the music really just blends in effortlessly and creates the environment. And there's nothing out of place. Like even, even when you know they're going into the Copacabana and we just see like the little snippets of the performers there and everyone in the crowd is just like in awe and like we're in the moment and we're in awe too. Like Sorsese did the bouncing act really well in Goodfellas. I also think that there is like the most it the pop music and the needle drops in Goodfellas just feel like part of the score. Yeah. Whereas in Casino they're like it's time for a pop song to make a dramatic point in this picture. <laughs> And it's yeah. like, yeah, it is. But like, whereas in Goodfellas, it's so like seamless and integrated. I will also say, this is just a fun fact that came up when I was talking about this with my squeeze while we were driving around the other day. Did you know that Henry Hill was kicked out of witness protection <laughs> because he kept yeah. telling people that, oh, did you know that it like Goodfellas? I'm the Goodfellas guy. Actually, you know, like Nora, an idiot. Nora Ephron wrote, my Blue Heaven, after hearing, I, I don't know if she was friends with Scorsese, she was friends with someone who was working on Goodfellas. And she listened, and she was there for a lot of the phone calls to discuss the movie with Henry Hill. And she wrote, I, th- I think it was, yeah, it was Scorsese. And she wrote My Blue Heaven after hearing Scorsese talking to Henry Hill. And apparently Scorsese hated the movie <laughs> that she made. But he was still living that life in witness protection program, like drugs and all that stuff. And I think I think his wife actually left him. Yeah. Yeah, the last title card of the movie is that they they are on a break. And they remained on a break until his death in 2012. And there's really nothing I've tried to find information on the internet in the past. And there's really nothing current about the wife. The the kids have spoken, but it's amazing to me because that movie is such a cultural iconic piece and normally you have individuals who want to sort of get out there and tell their side of the story or try to make some kind of profit on it or talk about their experience and there's really not any of that I mean there was Henry but aside from that nothing really he doesn't learn his lesson he just gets played yeah I mean, that's that's the kind of thing about, you know, the mob. I mean, a lot of them shouldn't be talking. (laughs) That's true. But a lot of those guys are no longer with us anymore. Yeah. So I wonder if there's, like, still the same 
level of fear. Because I mean, all right, I'm I'm not in the mob. I don't know how it works, but a lot of these families got broke up. It's like when you break up a monopoly, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. They broke up the monopoly, like in in New York, and they brought a lot of those families down. They brought them down in Boston. There's a lot of really interesting books about what happened with the Italian mob in Boston. But again, you know, Scorsese saw an empire that was big that was going to fall. And a lot of them started falling like in the late 80s and they continued through the 90s. I think the last one we saw was Gotti to go down, right? I don't know if the mafia still exists in the sense that it did before. I think maybe you have smaller families working maybe on a more neighborhood level and not like these all-encompassing people taking on entire territories if you kind of think about what the mob like was in a sense like yeah i mean even if we look at just goodfellas like directly like these are just this one family in this area of a major you know city and queens but i mean they weren't necessarily like you know they weren't running the entire new york city or whatever the mob probably still exists, so we should, you know, be careful right now. But <laughs> like I I would still probably say like whatever function that it serves, I think it's it's probably sort of in the same sort of regionalized specific territories of specific cities across America. Like I I'm not gonna say which town, but I I lived in a town where I definitely knew the mob was there, so you know we'll, we'll keep that a bit closer to the vest. But uh, <laughs> I would just like to state for the for the record and our legal team that we are uh, in fact not familiar with any mobs, and if we were, we certainly don't know where they operate, who they are, what families they are associated with, and uh, we sure do use VPNs, so you you can't track us through your internet anyway. And- and for the record, I've lived in every single city in America, so it's really hard to deduce what city I'm talking about, you know? I plead the fifth. <laughs> well, I don't plead anything because I'll never be on a witness stand, so That's there right. you go. What makes me want to get close to someone and snuggle? Fear. Salutations, I'm Melisette, and on a frightful fret with Melisette, I read classic horror stories combining audiobooks and audio drama into a podcast. Come away with me into the darkness and let me make your ears tingle with a sensation of terror. A Frightful Fret with Melisette. Available everywhere podcasts are and find us at ourfrightfulfret.net. Don't forget. A little bit of the flashiness in this. I... And and as I won't even say in casino, but like if you've spent any significant time in New York, the sheer amount of gray suits that you'll see, you know, flamboyance is not really a thing quite as much in New York. And I do wonder if some of that was exaggerated to make it an interesting movie to watch, if that makes sense. We don't have anybody we could reference and ask. <laughs> we <laughs> sure don't. You know, if if you have experience with the mafia and you want to, like, let us know if this is, in fact, how they dress and we just don't see it because we're not mafioso and we have not taken an omerta, then please feel free to message at show and mad love or Catherine underscore Chinetti. At the end of the day, right, like, I think that this is a really great portrait of a guy in a system that 
does corrupt everybody eventually, getting more and more corrupt as as he spends more and more time in the organization, and that it starts to affect the people around him as well. However, I did say after I finished it, so was there another any any other plot stuff besides gangsters are bad and sometimes do bad things and sometimes make other people bad? <laughs> I don't think I don't think Scorsese has interest beyond that, to be honest. I just think he's interested in the ways that people can kind of fall in well, people are born into these situations, they're of it and they kind of grow into it, but then eventually it collapses on itself. As far as like extended points and societal points beyond that uh and and i will just say as someone who's interested in logistical things i really like seeing how these things work and maybe they're that's like a stylized way you know but i really enjoy that these movies do get to some of the logistics and some of the nitty-gritty because that's stuff that i find really interesting yeah, like this is kind of like the the pop culture references to what kind of the mob was. Like this Godfathers and Sopranos basically. Now, did those all contribute to stereotypes for Italian Americans? Uh, and they're they're weirdly generational too, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, they they fold easily into different generations of what the mob is. So allegedly. Yeah. And those stereotypes are still around. And every once in a while, there's a comment about someone whom I know. And the comment is something along the lines of them living up to the stereotype. And if you grew up in an area like a Queens or, you know, like in a Boston. Southie. You're going to see that. And there's going to be the people who, who act like that. For whatever reason. And then you're always going to have your people who kind of like look at that and are like, oh, you know, I say you be the person you want to be. Just don't be a jerk. And if you're going to align with an international crime family, maybe don't do so much coke that you will continually get caught. Okay, thanks. I mean, but it's 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 the 80s, man. It's I mean, it's unavoidable cat cat. I think every week we come back to cocaine 80s like that's like the fun. You know, the, the terrible thing is so. This movie in Goodfellas, there's actually a lot of, well, all the crime shit, a lot of it's fairly true. Like, he was talking about the cocaine connection he got uh, from Pittsburgh, but Mm -hmm. in the 70s, Pittsburgh was fucking terrible for cocaine. Like, there are professional athletes in Pittsburgh that were continually getting caught for blow. Like, Like, you wouldn't think Pittsburgh was the connect. Pittsburgh is the gateway to blow, but... Pittsburgh was the gateway to cocaine. It was really strange. I was going to bring up this point that kind of Melissa was touching on a little bit as far as like what these movies kind of create and maybe life imitates art, art imitates life, and it kind of plays out in reality. Like even movies kind of like, you know, Boys in the Hood or Menace to Society to where if you weren't living in South Central or living in Compton or living in Southern California, like in the late 80s, early 90s, like you didn't really know what gang culture was, kind of what like the Crips and Bloods sort of became. And with those movies kind of portrayed, Boys in the Hood and Men's Society didn't really create stereotypes. But at the same time, 
if the wrong people watched those movies, they thought that's how life was in every black mm-hmm. neighborhood across America. So I can kind of see what Goodfellas would be in the wrong eyes to where like every, you know, Italian person knows someone is affiliated in some kind of way, which I don't think I know my kind of I know my respect. I didn't necessarily think that it was dope ass movies, but you know, I don't project my thoughts on other people. So I can kind of see how these sorts of the negative stereotypes can kind of be played out in reality. I also think the fact that Joe Pesci plays the exact same character in Casino, like the the same. <laughs> it's the same. You know, when I was watching Goodfellas, I actually got the Joe Pesci's mixed up because I was waiting for a scene that I know happens in Goodfellas and I thought, no, it, it, it happens in Casino, but I thought it was in Goodfellas and I was like, well, you know, when, when am I going to get to that part with the burial? And it's like, oh, oh wow. Movie. Right. Yeah. And like, they play the same character. They go wrong in the same way. I'm not trying to say that Joe Pesci is in some way responsible for Italian stereotyping. However, I don't think he helped. Joe Pesci is the Italian version of the sassy black best friend trope. He kind of is, though. It's like the the short Italian with an ego and also like a complex. You took your boots off, you put your feet on the table, you shit-kicking, stinky, horseman-horse-smelling motherfucker, you. You fucked me up over there. I'll stick you in a hole in the fucking desert. You understand? Move in and apologize. Yeah, get the fuck in. I definitely don't know anybody like that because everybody on the Italian, like the Chinetti side of the family is like six, seven, but they do all have complexes. You know, the funny thing, <laughs> talking about stereotypes, it's so funny, like watching these movies and then I've been recently rewatching Jersey Shore, don't ask, oh. but it's, it's so funny how these stereotypes of the Italians are just kind of there, but I've never truly seen it actually play out in real life. Like, I actually went to college with kids from, like, that lived on Tom's River, like, went to the Jersey Shore, like, every summer. Like, they were on the they were on the fucking shore or whatever, and they weren't like that at all. <laughs> A bunch of people from that show were cast out from other places, though. Yeah, like, fucking Pauly D. Mm-hmm. He's, from, he's from, like, Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah. It makes like, a lot more sense. It's an interesting dynamic being from an Italian family because it means different things to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But at its core, it's a celebration of a group of people that made it. Like they survived to come here and they built new lives and they got treated like garbage. I mean, I know a lot of people got treated like garbage. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't feel like they could go to the police for help. They were in these neighborhoods. People thought they were trash. They didn't want anything to do with them. So they had their own version of America that didn't exist outside their little area. I think that every community has that in some way. I think the Irish have it. I think that and the Scots certainly, I think, have their own little like spots. And those are really the only people that I can speak to with any actual knowledge because I'm a I'm I, I don't know if y'all have noticed, but I'm I'm a white peepo and that's fine. But like I think that as Boys in the Hood has in some ways commodified those stories, so has Goodfellas in some ways. 
And when you see something on a movie screen, it kind of automatically becomes aspirational because almost everybody dreams of being a movie star in some way, you know, or famous. And I'm sure there's some weird psychology that happens there that I don't know enough about to like conflate. But I do think that, and I've said this before about certain movies that they shouldn't be canceled unless people aren't willing to have conversations about them. Because some movies need to be that intro to that conversation. And if you can't have that conversation, then don't watch that movie. Don't show your kid that movie. And I don't know that Goodfellas is one of those. Because, hey, for Italians, they're very inclusive. They let a goddamn Irishman in. Yeah, they they really are. I mean, they they were kind of, you know, outsiders. And, you know, there are other people who are kind of on the fringes of society. Mm Mm-hmm. So you can you can kind of see that. I mean, for I for Italians especially, it's a movie that I I had heard so much about that by the time I got to it, I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. I know your your mom and your dad aren't necessarily into kind of movies in the, in the kind of the way that you are, but mm-hmm. how were you able to avoid Goodfellas for all these years? I I didn't have a lot of friends. All right. Hey, what's up, everybody? WWE Hall of Famer, The Godfather here. Special shout out to B. Hyphen and Handsome Bane for the WrestleCast Power Hour. And it's available everywhere. Podcasts or streams. So everybody check them out. You know The Godfather will. And it's time once again for everybody at the Hyphen Podcast Group to come aboard the But should we use needless extravagance to pivot to casino? You're in the finances, you're upstairs, but you are not on the floor. You don't see what's going on. I've got thousands of players, I've got 500 dealers. They're all looking to rob me blind 24 hours a day. I have to let them know I'm watching all the details all the time, that there is not one single thing I will not catch as I am over here. Look at yours. What? Look at that. Look at, look at this. There's nothing. Look how many blueberries your muffin has and how many mine has. Yours is falling apart. I have nothing. What are you talking about? It's like everything else in this place. You don't do it yourself. It never gets done. Where are you going? How long can this go on? From now on, I want you to put an equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. You know how long that's going to take? I don't care how long it takes. Put an equal amount in each muffin. Oh, yes. Let's do it. I loved Casino. Okay. (laughs) So I was like, oh, I don't want to watch a three-hour movie. Fuck. I don't want to do it. I don't want to. Finally, Friday night, I'm like, okay. Okay. I got a glass of wine. I'm doing it. I'm watching at least half. He walks out in the pink suit. And I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm in. When you love someone, you've got to trust them. There's no other way. You've got to give them the key to everything that's yours. Otherwise, what's the point? For a while, I believed that's the kind of love I had. And then he gets blown up. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit, I'm in. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever invested in a movie as quickly as I yes. did. Like, man in pink suit, man in pink suit exploded. I didn't even have to rewatch it because 
I've seen it so many times, but I saw that movie in the theater on opening night. Holy shit. I wasn't born. I know. (laughs) I was uh, nine. I was young, but it made such an impression on me. And, you know, we had Suffolk Downs in the area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, gambling wasn't legal here yet. But there was Suffolk Downs, and it was always like, well, when I get older, I'm going to do my research, and I'm going to bet on horses, and I'm going to make a lot of money. It never happened, because <laughs> but that movie made such an impact on me, and I, I think I had a lot of parts of it memorized. And Sharon Stone, can we talk about how perfect she was in that? We One absolutely thing can. that I adored about her performance, and I don't know if this was just her organically or how she was directed or some combination – she was allowed to have smile lines. Like she was allowed to smile big enough that she had smile lines and frown lines. And only upon seeing it, did I realize how rare that is? Oh my God. She gets to act using her whole face in this movie. When she's sad, she doesn't also have to look pretty. I mean, she does because she's Sarah stone, but she's not like trying to not crease her face. If that makes sense. She was on the cocaine bender was looking pretty gnarly. And there, there's that scene where she's in she's in bed and she's like she's like sitting up in bed and it's like every female has like you know when they're laying a certain way they're gonna look like they have a little bit of a stomach that's just how we're built we're all built like that there's nobody who's not built like that that's a that's a female or has a female body you know and they show that on screen and I don't ever remember seeing that on screen before where you yeah. saw like something that was like a real woman like where you could see her stomach do that. And it's always, everything's always very sexy and we want everyone to look as perfect as possible. And they didn't do that with her, even though she is an extremely attractive woman. And at that time she was, she was like the biggest star in the world, I think. And she was a sex symbol, like a list number one. And if you got Sharon Stone in a movie, oh my gosh. And everybody was in love with her so for them to allow that was like pretty rad i think that was the thing that was so alluring about her was that like right away it was like oh obviously she's beautiful but like right away i could see oh this is a real woman she is beautiful and she is not like real as in authentic but like real as in an actual human woman if we take away basic instinct and you look at everything she was doing in the 80s and like the like those 80 movies she was in man like it was all like you just look sexy just be sexy lady x in this movie <laughs> and like you know and then when basic instinct kind of came around and that movie was so controversial for its time but it did showcase her talent in a way that these other movies just hadn't done and I, I think Casino, even though Basic Instinct was like a pop culture moment when it dropped, I think as far as her acting ability, Casino like showed it out all in space and she did an amazing job in it. You know, this is probably not, I don't have the answers anyway. And this is probably not what you want to hear right now because you're a little upset with Ace. I understand that. But, you know, I think you should try to make the best of it now. Go slow, you know. See what happens. He could have killed him, okay? He could have killed him. He didn't have to hit him. It's not exactly like I'm sleeping with the guy and he makes me sneak around to see my own friends. The fuck is that all about? 
guess it's because he loves you so much. He's jealous and worries. He gives a fuck what I do. Look, I'll try to find out what the hell's going on. When I see him, I'll talk to him. Okay. All right? Thanks. Take it easy with this shit, will you? I mean, this can only make matters worse. You're a beautiful girl. You don't want to ruin your looks. I've seen a lot of girls get shot to hell from this stuff. Nice. Come on now, I don't want to see you unhappy. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Honestly, like, the more that I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, I also see why, like, Robert De Niro saw her for the first time and, like, saw her, like, being a snake, but was like, yeah, okay. You talk about a needle drop, like that shit was, oh. it was, it was on time. It was really on time. I'll be honest, and maybe this is just the optimist in me. I was, I really, I wanted them to make it work so bad. I was so hopeful. Like my favorite part is when Nikki came to Vegas and he brought his wife to their house and they're looking at the view, and then she comes, Sharon Stone comes. In the and the best camera does like the double goddamn take. Goddamn outfit. Yeah, the camera does a double take, and the the reaction from Nikki and his wife, and then he just says, "Holy shit, what you got going on out here?" <laughs> like, like for any person in a relationship, and you bring that partner around, you want that reaction. Like, you want the holy shit, what do you got going on out here reaction. So, that was a. Uh, that was a classic moment in that movie. Yeah, I I also think that there's the vibrancy of this movie and like the the opulence and the gaudiness that also felt very grounded. I think yeah. is like the fact that Robert De Niro doesn't wear any of those suits whenever he's at home. <laughs> like you can see the clear line between like who he is at work and who he is at home. Yeah. And and it gets to the point with Sharon Stone where she's oscillating back and forth she's in evening gowns at home and she's in casual wear at the casino and like that starts to be where she loses track of reality i just think i think it's all really strong i also like that his color scheme starts very cool and pastel toned and gets aggressively darker as he's dealing with what's going on with sharon stone and then once he makes peace with it and let's go he starts moving back pastel again so yeah. in that scene where everything starts to go tits up, he's in that dark red with the black. And by the time he's getting blown up, he's in, it's still a bright pink, but it's significantly <laughs> less bright than that red and less aggressive than that red. He's back in white for the first time in a while. Yeah, the final. So he's like in a super light turquoise, I believe. Exactly. And so yeah. you see him as he ex- he gets darker and darker and then starts to accept it and pull back out. And Sharon Stone starts wearing baggier and baggier pieces. Did we see a lot of movies before then where basically the the dad kicked out the mom and the dad had custody? Did we aside from Kramer versus Kramer, were there really many movies where that was a thing? I want to say no. Well, no, because in the eighties, like all parents, particularly dads, were just shit dads, like. There's, Isn't there's that only... the plot of the National Lampoon holiday movies? It's just Chevy, Chevy Chase is a 
horny bad dad. Bad dad, bad husband. Every time I watch that scene, I get increasingly angry because it it always is longer than I remember it being. Whoa. Oh, yeah. What is it? The scene. Okay. All right. It's the car scene, right? Because, like, pretty sure Chevy Chase has experienced some shrinkage by now. Anyway. In this essay. Bada bing! Please, Please don't sue me. Allegedly. We neither confirm nor deny here it. We should do this again sometime. Yeah, I mean, he's just it happens when you're old and also when you do a lot of drugs. Anyway, um. Whoa, <laughs> okay. Well, he did well, get cat. kicked off community. Getting kind of real, cat. <laughs> Whoa. I love community a lot. Yeah. But also, goodbye. <laughs> Damn. But to me, even though I think Casino also really feels like two movies stitched together. Yeah. A, I didn't care, and B, I felt like Casino was everything that we had seen in After Hours and Goodfellas up to this point, starting to mesh together. Mm. All the needle drops, all of the costume choices, all of the camera movements, everything that we had seen up until then, comedy beats, finally starting to all mesh together. Yeah. Another example of Marty being Marty. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I'm and like, I respected After Hours because I you saw where Scorsese was and you saw the potential. You didn't know where it was going to go, but most people don't start Scorsese there. Mm-hmm. They know him for the bigger movies. He's had so many big movies. I mean, how can you not? You're not going to go and find some obscure Martin Scorsese film and be like, I'm going to start with this. This one. Because you will probably not watch another one if you do. <laughs> I will say, though, I, I realized, like, oh, I've seen Wolf of Wall Street, which, what a, what a picture show. <laughs> but the thing that I liked about Casino instead of Wolf of Wall Street, really, not to be an asshole, but who is Robert De Niro hurting in Casino? Nobody. Like, he's fleecing some nameless, faceless casino owner, but yeah, also I mean, is running guy. a damn excellent casino. Yeah, he's not he's not scheming anyone. He's he, I, mean, I mean he's allowing scheming to happen. Well, yeah. But also he is so concerned about the scheming being caught or being even possibly caught that he is doing everything else right to run an excellent business. Yeah. And maybe that's the secret sauce in this movie is like, "Oh, I like this guy. He's doing a good thing." He is playing an interesting character that, while looking Italian, in a, a interesting colored suit with good tailoring. Maybe he is hot. I don't know. Still trying to figure that out. God, so, Father, do. J- James Woods is not hot and will never be hot in this essay. Oh, um, ne- never was. But... Yeah, he never I mean, was. I, I saw him in this movie and I went, oh, he looks like he's addicted to drugs. Oh, and then man. I thought about it for a second and went, right. So... <laughs> I also have realized now, having seen a couple of James Woods' performances outside of Hercules, that James Woods just plays James Woods. Uh, I mean, it's a variation of kind of high-strung, somewhat quick-talking asshole schemer, yeah. Uh, Sleazy. Yeah, if, if you, like, shook his hand, like, there'd be a layer of just, like, 
grease and sludge that would resonate on your hand. So even in movies when they attempt to make him a good person, like he's not a good person. So I think the Virgin Suicides is probably my favorite performance of his because that's the most different. And the most least that he's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he does such important work as the contrast to De Niro in a lot of ways. De Niro is always in brightly lit spaces. He's always kind of in the dark. You know, De Niro is always surrounded by this opulence. He's always in this gross looking motel. Like I get it, right? Yeah, they're the they're the opposite of what scheming probably is. Like De Niro is kind of the idea of what you would want to be if you're a yes. schemer. You're someone who's highly successful. People depend on you, but people trust you, and you're actually good at your job. Mm-hmm. Where Woods in Casino, he's low rent, low bottom. He's he's more of what schemers actually are in reality than what they have fabricated in their minds. And then Nikki so, is yeah, kind of it, right in the middle. Yeah. Where he, he blows his initial shot, but he starts to make it good. And then he gets kind of high on his own supply and and blows that up, too, and really flies too close to the sun and then gets fucked. Did anyone else, like, see that scene with uh, Ace's wife and Nikki and just immediately were like, ah! I had definite feelings when I saw that. I felt initially kind of like, wow, like, they're really going here. But it was, it was sort of like... It just makes total sense. Like, they're both kind of sleazy. So, why not make the union actually happen? So, yeah, except like, well, maybe she's not sleazy. I think describing Ginger as sleazy is a a bit strong. She's a climber. She's she's trying to get to the next best thing. And she thinks that Nikki is the next guy she can kind of take in. Yeah. But for me, the thing that's really frustrating is at the point where this happens, like, Nikki and Sam are still, I won't say friends, because I'm not convinced they were ever actually friends, but are fairly close co-workers. And the idea that that he would just kind of go like, no, like, we can fix it with your husband also blow me, is like, I mean, listen, we all, we all got to do what we got to do to get by in these mean streets. I fundamentally understand this, but like. If a guy asks you, do you want us? Do you want a new sponsor? <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> I would also just add, it's really frustrating because the movie actually devotes time to seeing Nikki being a good dad. Yeah. But that's the buildup, though. Like that's I mean, like if it's out of character, is it buildup? Uh, well, you know, um, I've seen people who I I think are just bad people that absolutely love love their kids or there's like a family member you know and it's kind of like what we saw in goodfellas where the way he was with his mom right Mm -hmm. played by marty scorsese's mom rest in peace but there's just like this sweet side no matter how bad you are it's almost like you want to see some kind of redeeming quality where maybe this is going to be what turns them around i guess like fucking some random showgirl is like I've seen a lot more marriages bounce back from that than like fucking your best friend's wife. Oh. Yeah, that's that's the danger zone. Kenny Loggins wrote a song about it. Oh well, no, he didn't. Uh, Kenny Loggins performed a song about it. Um, for me, I've noticed that Scorsese 
seems to have this weird thing about killing. Or maybe not this weird thing. Henry Hill doesn't get whacked or die in prison. He also never killed anybody. Karen is kind of this weird sacrificial lamb figure. She never killed anybody either. Not for lack of trying. Honestly, if she had killed Henry, I would have been like, good for her. But whatever. Sam is is unequivocally the hero of this movie. And he didn't kill anybody. Nikki is condemned because he did. Sharon Stone is condemned because she killed herself, basically. He seems to have this really strong value about who you can portray as good or just a casualty of things, depending on who they they have killed. Yeah, I mean, with the Irishman, the focus on that is like, like immediately just a bad guy and his journey with his family as a bad guy and where that leads him. Right. And a lot of people didn't like that movie. And if you didn't like that movie, um, I'll tell you to watch it again, because that's one that you need to look, you need to look at a few times. It's long, but the second time you watch it, you just see things from a different perspective. I think that Scorsese definitely has infatuation with violence. And obviously, like these movies are heavily violent. Uh, well, particular for Goodfellas and Casino. And I think he portrays it in a way, because I'm trying to think when you kind of say as far as just the idea of killing itself. I think he has an infatuation with violence, and I think in his mind, killing is the line you cannot come back from. When you are willing to take another person's life, at least in the movies that we watched, um, that is that is when you are officially exempt from potential hero status. Uh, maybe, maybe. Even when the idea of... Sam is clearly the hero in Casino, which I would say, even though he obviously survives in the end, he doesn't, he's not killed himself in the end. I would still say there's, there is something to be said about how, because his infatuation with Ginger was so strong that he wanted to get her into a loveless marriage and not necessarily force her to have a kid, but made sure that she had a kid. Okay, but he framed that relationship as exactly what it wound up being. Yeah, and but I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to like just sort of paint the picture of the fact that Ginger didn't necessarily I don't think Ginger necessarily killed herself. Like, yeah, the addiction got the best of her, but at the same time, if she wasn't necessarily trapped into this marriage, I mean you can make the argument she would eventually got caught up, but at the same time like she had the hustlers code down and she was a scrambler, but getting into that marriage took her out of that lifestyle that she effectively wanted. And she did. She wanted or was she a movie. victim of circumstance? I would say yes. But at the same time, even, even just the idea of her marrying someone successful to get her out of being a scammer, she didn't, she didn't want that. And so he kept like, but she said, yes, he he did ask her. He didn't hold her up at gunpoint and and say this. So yeah, like she she said yes, but at the same time, it just feels like to me, looking back on it now, it's just one of those things to where within the marriage itself, she wanted to leave multiple times and he refused to let her go. And so after those multiple denies to leave the loveless marriage, she fell more into addiction and. I think that Sam had a role in her demise more than what he would even admit to. 
Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Malachi. And this is Alejandra. And you're sitting on the couch and your life is passing you by because you're not watching Insert Name Here. Catch us Wednesdays at 8 p.m. on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you missed us, you can catch us on Friday on Spotify and Amazon. Yeah, obvious nonsense, gang, gang. Hyper Podcast Squad, you never take us down. Speaking of things that seem vaguely unconnected but make a cool hole, do we want to talk about After Hours? <sighs> Am I nailing the transition game tonight or what? <laughs> After Hours, okay. I'm very proud of you. Why don't you just go home? No. I've been asking myself that one all night long. Oh. Yes. I'm I'm really glad you called. Me too. Maybe you should come on over. No? Why not? After hours is so unique in the sense that not long after it's made, it's outdated. And the character who gets teased most in the movie is the one who I love the most, who aged the best. Mm-hmm. That's like a 60s girl where she brings, you know, she brings Paul over and she's like, you like the monkeys, Paul? I was like, I dig this chick. I like her. So, um, you really hate that job, huh? Yeah. I hate both of my jobs, you know? Oh, yeah? What else do you do? I work in the Xerox shop downstairs. Downstairs? Yeah. We're right on top of it. I've got the keys. You want to go down and see it? Um, no. Thanks. I've had about enough excitement for one night. It's a lousy job, but I can get free copies whenever I want to. Gee whiz. Hey, what is that? Gee whiz. I mean, are you humoring me? I don't have to take that kind of shit, you know? I mean, what is it with people today? You can't say anything without getting some kind of a smart answer. You just have to be so goddamn careful about everything you say. You think I don't notice? I know what's going on. I overhear the customers at the Xerox shop when they're making fun of me. I didn't mean anything by that. I mean, it was it was raining outside, and I invited you to come into my home. I didn't have to do that, now, did I? Now, first of all, you're not stupid. Look, I have trouble figuring out the tax on checks. So what? I mean, 8% is a bitch! I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. You know, they're like, oh, did you did you hook up with Miss Beehive? And she was like the butt of a joke. And I was like, oh, how dare you? Because just 10 years later, somebody like that would be definitely on the cool spectrum. Not, not even on the spectrum, like they would be the coolest because that was very much in style. But what's what, what strikes me is a lot of these things are not problems that you would have today because you have cell phones, you have uber and the only part that because I, I get that it's like a bad night that spiraled out of control the only part that really i didn't understand was why paul was going to the apartment to get the keys why didn't paul just say hey i'll cover the bar you go home fair i mean to me i like that it is seems to be this hybrid of actual homer's odyssey and a one crazy night narrative yeah and as a side effect of that, it really just seems like a collection of side quests. And then when you get to the end, like at the end of the Odyssey, Odysseus just goes home and like <laughs> is a farmer again. And he's like, I've been on adventures. And everybody is like, and I run a farm. <laughs> it, it does not matter what happened because the past had happened. Like, yeah. 
ultimate message, you can always go home. Yeah, and really you should probably aspire to always end up there because that is that is safety, at least in this case, that is safety, that is mundanity, that is normalcy. Can we talk about the star power in that movie? Oh, man. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. And I never heard of this movie till y'all mentioned that this was going to be one of the movies covered. So I didn't really read up on it or look into it. And there were a lot of people that were commenting saying, oh, I was in New York in the in the 80s. And, you know, this is this is a lot how it was like. I didn't know that there would be mega stars and it made I, I don't know if they, they were necessarily mega stars when the movie was made. And mm-hmm. some of them were somewhat popular, but not not to the status they are now. I would just like to take a quick opportunity to publicly yell about Catherine O'Hara again. <laughs> and and this is something that I say a lot, which was I, I once had a friend compare me to her and I was like, you're wrong, but thank you so much. <laughs> I loved her performance in this movie. I thought she was great. I do also want to say great to see friend of the podcast, Griffin Dunn. He's not actually a friend of the podcast, but I liked him a lot in American Werewolf in London. And I thought Lovely. we were never going to. Griffin Dunn, if you're listening. Give us a shout out. We will happily have you on the podcast. I have a lot of questions about Rick Baker. I'm a nerd. (laughs) Anyway, because I thought he did a really great job of this, like, put upon every man that also, like, when he needed to, could just get really unhinged really quick. Potzik, please. P-A-T-Z-A-K on Mulberry Street in Manhattan. Five, eight, six, two. Don't. Nine, Don't. three, eight, Ow. zero. <laughs> now I have forgotten the number. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Are you all right? <laughs> I have had a terrible, terrible night. Do you understand? I'm just trying to entertain you. I don't want any entertainment. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry. I just, I, I'm under... Oh, God. I, I'm unable to get home tonight, you know? I can't get home. And I'm trying desperately to find a place where I can stay tonight. Just sleep. All I want to do is sleep. He seemed to have this very st- strong sense of control over over the character. He which, did a fantastic job. Especially because the character is, like, not that much. This is a guy who just wants to go out and get some yeah and it's for like that's the whole objective and this chick's like hey come over and he's like yeah whatever i mean it's late but sure and then it all goes to heck mm-hmm. is his goal even to get laid i feel like i felt like it was like you know he's not like your typical guy who's got buddies and is gonna shout it out because i mean a lot of people in new york they're probably loners they're from other places. Maybe they don't have a friend group yet. I think he was looking for a genuine connection. Yeah. I could argue whether or not that was sexual. But the way that she came in with, like, my husband, let's talk about The Wizard of Oz. I understand <laughs> that even if you're trying to just be friends with somebody, that's incredibly off-putting. Yeah. Like, if... if a lot if, for the first night of knowing a person. Right. If I had someone come over who I'd only ever met through work or whatever, you know, during the pandemic, like come to hang out in my yard and be like, okay, so here's all my trauma. <laughs> I, I would be like, cool. I'm, I hope you're getting professional help. It was so nice to meet you. And um, 
uh, please ditch my address and my number. Have a great rest of your day. I kind of see the, the connection point initially. And maybe it's because I'm thinking of when he got to the place. I think initially when she starts kind of unloading her like capital T trauma, he's like, oh, but like, I can help with that. Me and my magic dick. Like, and then, and then he's like, oh no, this is much more than I can handle. <laughs> the thing that I think is appealing about her is the possibility of sex. Even if it's actually a friendship. Like, the possibility Mate. of sex. Ooh. I wish we got into what he was thinking when he saw the roommate just like topless for no reason. Just like, hey, I'm topless. <laughs> Hey, okay, but what a dude. babe. Like I, she she's amazing. She was I remembered her from Men in Black. I know she's been in other stuff, but she was in Men in Black. Shout out to uh Will Patton as horse. Which, <laughs> what a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> kind of looking up last year, just looking at Scorsese. Last year, obviously, I was looking at a lot of movies, but I was looking at Scorsese's kind of, you know, filmography, and I did catch that this was on HBO Max, and this movie is so different than all the other Scorsese movies I've ever watched that it's so odd and silly that you wouldn't think that a guy who made Raging Bull would make this movie. Like, like the movie with his male protagonist, even we, I mean, we talked about these two movies now, but he spends so much time building those characters up that, in a way, they they are kind of like you know superheroes. Like we're looking at their origin story, but for after hours, we just see that this guy is just beaten down by his shit job, and he just met this random attractive woman, and he's trying to make it happen. And whether it is a relationship or you know the one night stand or whatever. He's just a normal guy trying to make this shit happen. And when he doesn't, and he keeps getting into all this shit, it, it just feels like all those kind of moments when the black ring cloud kind of follows you for no it, fucking reason. It almost feels like the beginning of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, mm. where where it starts okay, and then just thing after thing after thing after thing goes wrong. Until Janet is like, I'm tired, I'm hungry, or what is it? I'm cold and I'm wet and I'm just plain scared. And, like, that energy of, like, this outburst about how could everything go wrong. And then, like, the elevator behind them is lifting up another thing that's about to go wrong. (laughs) This whole movie has a very similar energy to that, I feel. That's right on point. What I get about this movie is... I mean, it's a series of tragedies in one movie, but each tragedy is like its own short film. And so you can take any one of these and like see it on its own. And maybe, you know, this one, this tragedy wasn't your tragedy. But don't worry, there's another tragedy that's going to entertain you. Like for me, the, the train thing really hit close to home because I remember being at a bachelorette party and having my tea pass and be like, here, just take my tea pass. And like the, the security guy came over and took my tea pass away and it was like, the second day of the month, he's like, you can't have this back. And like yelling at me and, you know, I got like shunned and yelled at and I had to go buy tokens. and Oh, pour well, one out for was tokens. Not that, was not that long ago that tokens were still going on. In a way, it's a little bit like Lost in Translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it's, 
it's about those random connections you make. Yeah. But obviously, in this case, it's kind of a comedy, and it's meant to be like this put upon every man, so everything's kind of turned up to 11, whereas Lost in Translation's a little bit more sincere. You can question whether or not it should be, but it is. In in the way that I think a lot of people related to Lost in Translation, because they have that, like, one really, like, deep connection with someone they couldn't ever be with for whatever reason. Like, a lot of people have that story in their life. A lot of people have that, like, one night that just went really weird. And, like, maybe they don't talk about it. But everybody's had a night where they went over to someone's house and they thought it was going to be something. And then it wasn't, so they went somewhere else. And then that was weird, too. And, you know, everything just kind of spiraled out of control. Yeah. And I think that the thing that this movie does really well is that everything is 11. (laughs) Catherine O'Hara stomping through the streets. Doesn't she start blowing on a whistle at one point? She's got an ice cream truck. Yeah. Yeah. She's got an ice cream truck and a rape whistle. And she's got something to say. Catherine O'Hara with an ice cream truck is probably, like, I couldn't imagine anything more perfect in life is that. Because she's already, like, walking perfection. But her with an ice cream truck is next level. And I would never have imagined something that miraculous ever. Yeah. But Marty Scorsese, he knew. Of all people. Did you guys peep Scorsese in the movie? I did not. When they're in that wild-ass club and yeah. it was a guy on the scaffold, like, holding that, like, globe light, that was Scorsese. Oh. The sad part is I know that, like, not that club, but, like, I know that club. You know what I mean? Like, I know that bouncer who's, like, you want to go in there looking like that? Like, I I know the vibes. Yeah, going to any club in any city, not even major city, but, as well, especially major cities, but there's always that, the bodyguard or the the bouncer or the club, the the doorman that you want to knock out, but you know you can't. And so you just have to kind of take it. So that was uh, very refreshing to kind of see. May I enter? I can't let you in at the moment. Will it be possible to be uh, admitted at a, at a more convenient time for the club? It is possible, but not at the moment. If you're so drawn to it, try and force your way in. Got any money? Yes, I have money. Is that what you want? Money? Why didn't you just ask for that in the first place, man? Here, it's not much, but it's all I've got. I'll take your money, because I don't want you to feel you left anything untried. You keep the quarter. You still have to wait a few minutes. Okay, Mark. Why doesn't he have to wait a few minutes? Tonight is Mohawk night. If you had a Mohawk, you could go in. Oh, Oh, come on. We're both adults. Why don't you just let me in? You really want to go inside? Yes, you know, it's very important. I've got people in there. They're expecting me. Why don't you just let me in? You sure? I don't know a lot about clubs. I was never cool enough to really spend time in them. Until, like, an under-18 night at 
a club maybe once or twice, and that was about it. And when Marley goes to college, we can go to clubs with lots of chairs because we're both tripods. Oh yes. my God. I look forward to that. Follow Cat at Cat underscore Chinetti on Twitter, Twitch, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Follow Marcus at Show and Mad Love, S H O W I N M A D L O V, on Twitter and Letterboxd. Follow the show on Twitter at Cat and Mark and join our We Should Do This Again Sometime Facebook group. Be sure to read us at catseesmovies.tumblr.com and the Mark Rob, T H E M A R C R O B dot WordPress.com. This podcast is executive produced by Kellen Conley and Eric Greenlee. Thanks for listening. We should do this again sometime. This is a hyphen podcast production.